After Paris in the winter, we have Paris and Roland Garros as it should be in the springtime. And this week on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast, together with previewing the second Grand Slam of the year, we will be hearing from two men still needing to find their clay feet in 2021 in Russia's Daniel Medvedev and Swiss superstar Roger Federer. And we'll also be getting the thoughts of a coach whose charge is more than happy on the clay in Kasparud's dad, Christian. But first, I'm Gigi Sam and I'm delighted to say that for this preview pod, I am joined by Radio Roland Garros commentator and journalist and publisher of opencourt.ca, Steph Miles. How are you, Steph? I'm good. You know, I'll tell you what, on Monday night at 11 p.m. when I was watching a Canadian player in the qualifying and it was so cold I had to put tennis socks on my hands, it was freezing. I got When I got home, my hands were thawing out and they were actually burning. That's how cold it was. It does take us back to last September, October when... It was bitter at times. Every day. Every day. Drizzly. Awful. Awful. And that's what it was like this week. And apparently for two months across Europe, some of the players were telling me. So this sun that we're having, this reasonably good weather is just in time for the main draw. Oh, this is this is amazing. What changes or differences have you noticed from Roland Garros in September, October to this year? Well, there's, there's, there are quite a few changes. They have, they're revamping the whole site, obviously. The, you know, the stadium was all brand new and redone. Uh, last year, the court, they, there are fewer courts on site now than there were a few years ago. Yeah. But the ones that they have are all redone. So on the left side of the avenue, as you go up towards Suzanne Long Lawn, there is, I believe, courts six and eight. Okay. And last year, or last fall, that was just a big construction pit. And now it looks exactly like the one, seven and nine on the other side. Uh, and it's beautiful. Uh, it looks lovely. And so that's different. And also of the whole section where court one used to be was not much was going on there last year. But now there's, you know, there's grass and there's all this kind of stuff. And they've tried to widen a lot of spaces out because they are expecting a fair few fans here. And the, 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 the protocol, the plan to get all these people in and out of the place, I'm just reading it and my, and my brain is exploding just looking at it because I have no idea how they're going to pull that off, especially when you when you look around uh, and saw the cafes as I was walking home filled up last night, just as they were last October, the French seem to like to be in very close quarters with each other. So it's going to be very, very interesting. For example, if two field courts, the batches finish at the same time, they are going to hold the people up on one court and empty out the other court to try to keep the flow reasonable. I'm like, good luck with that. All kinds of things like that. Good luck with that. We have the roof, which we had last year, but we have this year, we have the official night sessions. Now they're going to run till the and include the second Wednesday. We're going to have that one match that starts on Philippe Chatry at, I think, nine o'clock. And then on the final one, it's an eight o'clock start. And that, I believe, is the first one where we can have night session fans. It is going to be an interesting thing, especially because, unfortunately, there'll be no fans. I mean, yeah. they're doing it for television, which is great. Uh, it'll be what we'll be very interesting to see what the mix of men and women's matches are because yeah. of the best of three, best of five. Uh, tournament director Guy Forget was a little wavery, a little waffly on that uh, particular issue. But but the truth is, you know, even if you have a straightforward men's match, you're still going to at least give people two hours uh, of tennis. And if you have a very straightforward women's match, it could be an hour. Yeah. Uh, So that's a tough call. Uh, we'll see how they handle it and and we'll see, you know, how, what the reaction will be. I think after eight or nine days of really long night sessions, we'd be happy with an hour. I, I, I fully <laughs> agree with you, but that's very self-serving on our part. No, I yeah. know. It is. It is. We do have something that was unveiled 
yesterday with a man himself alongside it uh, was a statue. And I always find it must be quite a weird situation. I, I think it's fair to say you and I will never have. I don't know. Maybe back in Canada you will. I'm a big deal you, back there. Or so you, you never have know. a statue yeah. already. <laughs> but that weird feeling of standing next to something and it's suddenly revealed and everyone looks at you for you looking at it to see what you think about your statue. And that's exactly what we had with Nadal when it was unveiled. But it's a very nice picture yeah, of him. Like, I is. think he looks he looks sort of samurai warrior or something or other. Yeah. Like, it's kind of it's kind of nifty. Feet off the ground, yeah. mid-shot. Uh, but it must be strange. It must be strange to have these things or to have a court named after you also yeah, at a tournament yeah. uh, when you're still playing. I think that... Um, that maybe they should put it in the corner of Chatrier just to remind all of his opponents, if as if reading out his resume as he walks on the court. I know, that's, oh, that's awful, <laughs> isn't it? Oh, it was wonderful, but if you're his opponent, you're coming out, making your debut on Chatrier, it's the first round, and having to go through every single win, you're thinking, thanks very much. I've tried to block it out, and now you've just run through everything he's ever done. You know, yesterday I was watching Roger Federer, who's on Chatrier for the first time in, what, two years? Yeah. Only the second time in five years he's been here, which I hadn't, it's incredible, isn't it? Twigged in. And so he walked out and he certainly hadn't seen the new place. And he was doing a fair bit of, of looking around and, and, and looking for the surroundings. But it was funny because he was hitting with Aslan Karatsev, who wasn't even a thing the last time he was here, right? He wow. was some 300-ranked guy playing yeah. challengers and wondering where his career was going. So, But Federer likes, to, likes to, to find the new blood and sort of test it out for himself. But typically, they're 17 or 18. So this fellow's 27. Uh, and he's still 12 years younger than Federer, and and so he's there. And I, I, you know, I was across the court, and I couldn't really hear what they were saying. But I think at some point, you know, well, he went over and introduced himself to Karatsev's guys, who just were wearing these random clothes and just looked like they just walked, you know, walked in off the street. And it was like, "Hi, I'm Raj." You know, <laughs> and like, I know. And um, and and then at a certain point, they started to chat, and I. Think that Federer actually asked him if he'd ever been here, and 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 Karatsev sort of smirked and went, "Yeah, and qualies." <laughs> so they start hitting up, and and obviously Karatsev doesn't, you know, he. I mean, a year ago he was in qualies here, two years ago, and and all of a sudden he's on Cour Philippe Chatrier, you know, hitting with Roger Federer. I wonder if if it even occurred to him what a change in fortunes that is. But at the beginning, he was a little tight. His strokes are kind of jerky. Obviously, didn't want to miss, and Federer wasn't missing. He was, and and but but when Karatsa started to put that power and and realize and and Federer realized that his calves were actually comparable to Karatsa's, <laughs> you know, famous calves. Uh, they started increasing the pace, and they were and, and and Federer wanted to make sure that the other guy knew that he could keep up with that pace, and so it got a little it got a little intense. And then after about 15 minutes, uh, Federer said, "Break." But it wasn't break, it was break. And <laughs> yes, Roger, <laughs> they went and sat down. It was very interesting. It was very interesting dynamic. And there were a lot of people on the court there obviously wanting to, to catch a look at Mr. Federer. Look, who wants to give this up? And something I, I want to mention, and I know this is the ATP Tennis Radio podcast, but this does sort of flow into tennis in general, especially your role as, as a journalist, is, is Naomi Osaka taking the stance saying that she doesn't want to speak to the press in her press conferences. She touched on it being a mental health issue and pulled out another few points. But it's uh, the impact this will have. And again, we're not we're not going to judge her one way or the other, but as a journalist, the impact it will have on, on a player of her status 
not speaking in a press conference to the journalists. It's a complicated thing. And, and, and I saw an email that she wrote to the tournament organizers saying, oh, it's nothing personal. It just, it just happened to be now. I've been in a lot of Naomi Osaka press conferences, and everybody is pretty unfailingly kind with her because they realize that she's, that she's uh, not, fra- I wouldn't say fragile, but she's, she's you know, she's um, she, very young. Very shy. She's very shy. She, she's very, she's younger than her chronological age, I would say, which happens often, uh, especially on the women's side. And, and she's, she seems sort of vulnerable. Like, it's, it's, it would be like kicking Bambi. You know what I mean? So I, I haven't seen anything in the press conferences that would lead her to uh, to feel that way about the press. And I thought that she, her characterization from her own personal experience uh, was unfair. If this is how you feel, and it's a legitimate way to feel, then you work internally with the tours, as she says she's going to do after Roland Garros. If this is an issue with you and you want to address it, if you want to um, you know, affect some change with that, great. I don't think she fully thought it through, and either she didn't, tell anybody around her um, about this, uh, she was planning to do this, or nobody, you know, stood up and said, no, Naomi, uh, you're, you know, you're kind of a brand now. You know, it's not just about you. And there are a lot of other considerations you need to at least review before you make such a big move. So I'm, fa- I'm fascinated to see how it's all going to play out. And, you know, if she ends up winning the tournament, she'd be like, well, that was a great idea. I'm never talking to the press again. (laughs) But I certainly am not going to ask any other players how they feel about this. I feel like that's a story that's created out of, you know, sort of nothing. There are a lot of great tennis stories uh, to be written. Absolutely. And I feel we are talking about mental health a lot more, especially during COVID times. There are a number of players, Gilles Simon for once, who said, look, I'm, I'm going to come back when this is eased. I don't want to be in a bubble. This is not how I enjoy or play tennis. Benoit Paire probably should have taken a break maybe a little bit yeah. earlier because he's obviously been been struggling with his life and not having crowds. And someone you see Morfis as well. Yes, absolutely. It's not just the French players. We just happened to name <laughs> the first three. given the examples. Yeah. Well, the one I was moving on to is Dominic Team who took some time out. And I know a lot of that stems from winning the US Open and we've seen this before, that sort of you've you've achieved something that you've been going for your whole life. Every minute of everything you've done is to win a Grand Slam. You win it and you think, what happens now? And, and he said it was also COVID and, and the bubble life and, and what do I do now? He's back on tour. He said the new goal is winning Roland Garros, but I don't know about you, but it feels the physicality will always be there with team, but, but mentally it, it seems possibly struggling a little bit mentally. Yeah, he is, his game is full, a little bit like Nadal's, is full out, flat out, physical effort and need and needs to have that level of intensity every single point. And he looks like a little bit like a shadow of himself right now. And there are other guys who've taken up the slack. So um, yeah, I'm not sure I would, I would at this point put him uh, among the favorites, whereas before there was Nadal and well, he was the only other next guy who might, and, and Djokovic, yeah. and he was the only other next guy who could maybe pull it off. And I don't feel like that's the case right now. Uh, but he might he might play his way into it. Well, what he's got himself, he's got himself out of that loaded top half of the draw. I mean, so in terms of having an opportunity, that, that top half, which we'll get to, is absolutely stacked. How do you see things playing out in the lower half? Well, it's stacked because it has Nadal and Djokovic, which is unfortunate. I'm not sure Federer is, yeah. is a factor yet. We'll see. 
but um, so it's certainly stacked with the older fellows, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, the pressure is, is just there when you look at the bottom half and we'll forget Daniil Medvedev because I, I think he takes himself out of the running. We are going to hear from him shortly, uh, so we'll, we'll forget uh, about him for now. I like his attitude about it though. I mean, it's certainly amusing, but you've got, say, Zverev, Team, Tsitsipas, uh, really in the bottom half, that's probably, but then you've got some solid guys. You've got Karenio Busta, you've got Batista Agut, but I think that uh, that Alexander Zverev has certainly had a better clay court season than Team has, and that is his that is his section. So, is Sitsipas ready to win a Grand Slam? <clears throat> you know, I think he's ready. His only issue, best of five sets. Uh, but you know what? He's shown that he can do that. Uh, what he has not yet shown, and very very few people have shown is if they can do it against Djokovic or Nadal. Now, he doesn't have to necessarily worry about that uh, until the final. And certainly, you know, getting to the final, I think, is, is already a great achievement for him. Perhaps he feels as though he's ready to take that next step. But the first thing he has to do is put himself in, in position to try to do it. Now, we are going to talk about him a little bit. He might not be a favourite, but he is sandwiched between Nadal and Djokovic in the, in the FedEx ATP rankings. It is the Russian Daniel Medvedev. Now, the ATP Uncovered TV show recently sat down with the world number two, who made history earlier this year by becoming the first player not named Federer, Nadal, Djokovic or Murray to occupy that spot in the rankings in more than a decade and a half. Now, his rapid ascent came after a 20-match winning streak, which started last November at the Rolex Paris Masters through to the Australian Open semi-finals, but the Russian's journey to a new career-high ranking could be just the start of even bigger things to come. When did you realize you had the opportunity to become number two? Uh, I think, to be honest, uh, the, the opportunity to become number two, I for sure felt it first time uh, after Australian Open, when uh, I saw that I'm really close to Rafa. So I knew that I have to probably play good in Rotterdam and maybe Miami to try to pass him. Then once uh, we understood the point system uh, going to change a little bit, uh, that's when I knew I'm actually going to become number two. When it's uh, coming from number four to number three or number three to number two, you need to win big titles. Uh, you need to go far, far in uh, Grand Slams. Watching uh, Rafa, Roger and Novak play against each other, these crazy matches, also Andy, of course. I remember I was playing juniors first, then the futures, challengers, and still watching these matches, you know. Just dream of being there uh, on the same court, maybe playing against them. Once you get to a chance to play against them, you feel like, okay, I have to, I have to do probably better than I did because I lost my first matches against them. And uh, that's where you feel like you need to improve big time. Well, class. I think until you beat them, 
it's tough to feel it. I remember though a match in Australian Open against Novak uh, was a fourth round match. Was Australian Open he won and I was the only player to win a set from him. But that's the match where I felt like I was really close to doing something big. And actually the next match against him I won. Definitely uh, the best match of my career, not uh, in terms of level of tennis, but uh, definitely by the result. First uh, Masters 1000 semi-final, beating number one for the first time in my life. Just amazing. When you look at these guys, uh, when you don't know them and when you're still not on the tour the way I am right now, you think these guys are not normal, it's superstars. So you think, okay, that's a superstar, he, he's different, you know, in a way, doesn't matter which way. But what is actually crazy that we're the same, you know. Joe said that I'm the best in the West. I got the girl singing. Damn, look at how he dressed. No need to guess, just bless my finesse. I keep him oh, in a mess. Oh, I was practicing already in Cannes. My coach comes to me and says, OK, probably next week you're going to practice with Novak. For me, it was unbelievable. I think I was uh, 500 in the world or something like this. So but he was number one. He just won Wimbledon. And for me, it was just unbelievable, you know, to have this chance. I remember way back then we used to hang. Everything was different, including the slang. Firstly, I think the most important uh, for a guy like me at the time was I took a photo with him. <laughs> that was really important at the time. I was so nervous. He comes in, starts talking to me straight away, says, Thanks for coming. I was like, thanks for coming. What are you talking about? <laughs> so all these small details. And then during the practice, I would be sitting on my chair, you know, being quite tight, just talking to my coach. He would come in, just, you know, keep the conversation going and was super nice. And since then, it didn't change, no matter I'm two in the world and number 500. The third victory of his career against the world number one, Novak Djokovic. We grow, we mature, we change uh, with, uh, with age, but Novak is still the same like he was when he was 10 years old. Same about me, so I think that's something I understand more now that actually that's why he was talking to me because, uh, well, it doesn't matter if the guy is 500 or not, he's just a human being and uh, that's, I think it matters a lot. To be honest, I enjoy the moment, you know, for sure I know this, uh, this fact and it just makes me really uh, honored. I feel grateful for what I could achieve, uh, I feel happy and uh, it's great that I'm the first one uh, since many, many years who could uh, break this uh, top four thing. And from Russia. I know what I'm capable of uh, when I'm playing good, but hopefully I can, uh, can continue improving and like this I'm going to have my chances to break something more. And he seals it in the most spectacular fashion. Never passed the first round in four attempts. How much is this I hate clay weighted towards the mental rather than not suiting his style of play? Ultimately, I think it's a mindset. I mean, at this point, the minute something goes wrong, you know, he, he sort of checks out because he feels like it's just too hard. 
Uh, and and you can become number one and win slams and not be good on clay. You know, this is this has been proven to be the case. So I think his ambition level has to rise. And I think that, you know, he's still a young player. He's, he's a little bit older than the other guys, but he's still fairly young as a player. And I think I think he can get there, but he's gotta he's gotta flip the switch and want to. Now the problem is is that the offseason is so short. Even though he lives in Monte Carlo, he could go out there and work on clay you know, in, in December if he wanted to, but then you go right back on hard court. So it's really, really difficult to make incremental or substantial changes on a surface once you're already on tour. I feel as though he's going to constantly be the social... It's so funny when you when you read Twitter and say, oh my God, I can't believe he's seated number two. Roland Garros should be embarrassed. Well, it's the same thing every year. I mean, you work all year to have your ranking so that you can have your seating so that you can be placed in a draw. This is nothing new. I mean, even Wimbledon has abandoned the grass court seatings for the men, I think, this year, right? Yeah, so, has. But Andy Roddick said, it was actually on Twitter today, he believes that Roland Garros, because it's such a specialized surface, should have weighted seedings like Wimbledon used to do. Yeah, but I mean, even Wimbledon has given this up. <laughs> you know what I mean? But isn't it a shame? Isn't it a shame that, that not that Medvedev's number two, he's earned the right, but that Nadal has ended up, he should be at the opposite end of the draw to Djokovic. Well, he should be, but but he hasn't played that much. Yeah. And certainly the, certainly the the rankings are, are all sort of askew because of the COVID protected yeah. stuff and all of that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, in that particular case, you know, Nadal might even be lower if the real rankings were used. So it's tough because as I guess said, you, you know, you spend, you spend your entire year working for that ranking to get there. Now let's say you squeeze in like Riley Opelka did as number 32 seed. And, you know, and he had, he had a nice week in Rome as well, but I mean, he worked hard to be, to, to get to, you know, 32, 33 in the world, whatever he is, to get into the seating. Now, all of a sudden, you say, well, this guy's only had one good clay court tournament in his life. So do you So you do randomly decide, well, okay, I'm sorry, Riley, but we're not going to seed you. Oh, and, you know, just out of the luck of the draw, you're going to get Nadal in the first round. So it is, it, it, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not just about Nadal. It's a little bit about the integrity of the tournament as a whole and the effort that everybody puts in. I try to look at, at it as a big picture. I mean, it's really, it's, look, it's really unfortunate that, that Nadal and Djokovic are in the same half. But again, they both have to get there. What are you expecting, if anything, of Roger Federer? Uh, I, think, I think people are hoping Right. I, I don't I, I think he said he was pretty clear in Geneva that he's not going to win Roland Garros. And, which is fair enough. Well, which is fair enough. And also, I think he's stating the obvious because he certainly it's been a long time since he's actually won it. Even when he was in, in full form, he's in a tough era to win in any other era. He probably would have won a sizable amount of those. Uh, I hope that he doesn't get hurt. I hope he doesn't push it physically if he gets to a fourth or fifth set with somebody. Uh, and and um, I mean, look, he looks good. He looks he looks really fit, but it's not the same. And I remember, and who was somebody was saying it might have been Gilles Simon because he's good for this kind of stuff. No, it was Gasquet. It was Gasquet who said after seeing uh, Federer when he had his first match back in in the Middle East, he said, "Well, he looked absolutely gassed at the end of that." Uh, and it was only a best of three sets, and he'd been training forever and ever and ever. But but the, the so different. The, it's so different, you know, playing and practicing. So I hope he can ease his way in. Um, I hope he gets. Could be Marin Cilic in the second round. Yeah, but Marin Cilic is is 
is um, not the Marin Cilic of old. No, you know it's funny we talk about retirements and people and whatever, and it's never it's never a nice, neat, tidy ending that you want. Most of the time, it's Tsonga or it's Marin Cilic, and he's quite young still. Was he thirty two, something like that? But he he clearly is over it. And, and it, it seems hard for him to muster the same level of intensity that he had at the peak of his career. So he's faded a little bit, uh, but I, I don't think that he's the kind of guy that Federer is going to be worried about. But again, you know, if Federer gets into the third hour of a match, it'll be very interesting to see because we, we don't often, we've not often seen him struggle physically during a tennis match. But this is a nearly 40-year-old guy, and, and even Federer, and you look at him, he looks like a million bucks, and he, obviously his facialist is spectacular. The hair is all in place. I mean, everything looks wonderful. He looks amazing, but, but yeah, he'll have a day off in between, but let's say he goes through three and a half hours, and then he has to come back 48 hours later and do it again. It's going to depend on how his matches play out, and I think he'll be... He'll be in a rather he'll be rather motivated to be very aggressive. Now we did Federer get his feet dirty this year, albeit briefly. The recent ATP 250 event in Geneva was the first time he'd competed on clay since the 2019 French Open. Before the 20-time Grand Slam champion touched the court, he sat down with ATP Uncovered to answer some of his fans' biggest questions from Twitter. Welcome back. How are you? Federer 2017 versus Federer 2006. Who's better? Good question. I, I would probably think that somehow 2006, some of my best years when I was barely losing. Okay, in 17 also had a wonderful year. But uh, somehow I picked six over 17, even though in 17 now I'm more experienced. Uh, maybe overall I have a little bit more power. My game is again more rounded. I know more uh, what is going on, but probably I was a little bit the better mover in the uh, in 2006, but then also the game again was different, you know. Um, maybe we had a little bit more time in, in six, so things were a little bit different. Uh, opponents were different almost, except a few. <laughs> Probably pick uh, six over 17. Your favorite WTA player? Belinda, obviously. Uh, she's my, my best friend on the, on the women's tour. Um, having played all the Hopman Cups with her, she's been the, the best partner and uh, hopefully we can partner up again um, at the at the Olympics together in the mix maybe and then of course there is uh, some exceptional players at the top like Osaka and Barty and we're not going to forget about Serena obviously she's the queen so all good there. This is from Robert Lindstedt. He has asked you, are you sad as I am that we never played with each other? <laughs> Well, Robert Lindsay is a funny guy, you know that, right? And uh, he's one of the guys in the locker room that is always uh, up for a good joke. So yes, I am actually extremely sad. We've uh, never played together. I feel like I've asked him more uh, so to play doubles than he has asked me. So clearly the disappointment is, is very, very big for me, yeah. Favourite off-court activity or hobby? Well, I mean, it's all, all about my children, really. Um, being the dad, being there for them. I like building Lego, so I've been, that's been like a, <laughs> a bit of a hobby of mine during the lockdowns. So it was easier to sit down and take time to build the Harry Potter castle. That was, uh, that was some, some hard work there, and then obviously it's about just going out to the outdoors and having fun there. If you could coach one player currently on the ATP Tour, who would it be? I don't have much interest to be coaching. I would rather coach uh, juniors and youngsters coming up and inspire and mentor 
them. Have you practiced with any of the young guys lately? Uh, no, I practiced with Musetti in, uh, in Australia when he was still a junior and these young guys, Sinner also when he was still a junior. I really enjoy uh, practicing with the young guys, you know, also welcoming them to the tour and uh, Novak, Rafa and everybody does the same, which I think is wonderful actually. This is a tough one, but it's not as tough as what Kick Manovic asked you in Miami two years ago. Who's your favorite child? Yeah, that was, that, that was, that was very wrong by him. <laughs> you have four kids, mm -hmm. so I think what we want to know is which one is your favorite? Cheeky question, huh? So, here's a question. Who is easier to parent, the boys or the girls? Oh, man. Um, I'd say right now the girls. But it hasn't always been like this. <laughs> My kids, thank you guys. I think it depends on the daily moods. Um, there is um, some, some serious mood swings going on from time to time, so it's a battle, but it's a good one. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Uh, Novak Djokovic doesn't have twins. He's got a, a boy and a girl. He's looking for Grand Slam title number 19. He's looking to close the gap. He was demolished by Nadal in the final back in October on Philippe Chiatrier. What are you expecting? I mean, he's st as we speak, he's still in Belgrade. He's taking part in Belgrade 2, his brother's tournament director there. Very important tournament for him. But it's different when he comes here and he faces Nadal on this surface. So where are you with, with Djokovic this tournament? I am I am looking at his draw at least through through the fourth fourth round and I think he's in pretty good shape. I don't see I don't see Pablo Cuevas as capable as he is or Hugo Humbert or Dimenaro who you would think would be a better clay court player than he is or David Goffin who's not having much of a year. I don't see any of that I don't think, see any of that happening. He's, he's got a good section, but he's had a very unusual sort of spring because he obviously has this commitment to, to the tournaments, and they want a 500 there. There are a lot of things involved. His, his, bro, his youngest brother is a tournament director who, who doesn't have any particular experience at this sort of thing, as far as I know. I'm sure he's got some personal cash invested in this. There's a lot riding on it, and I'm sure he would much rather not play the week before a major. It's also great at the same time that they were willing to have a second ATP event there to help you know create pl more player opportunities during COVID time. So that's great, but it certainly upset his schedule, uh, and certainly players are you know creatures of routine. But he and he, I don't think the tennis, the amount of tennis, will bother him so much. But he, he's he's had a lot of you know he's had a lot of things going on this spring. He hasn't necessarily looked at like himself. I'm not sure his tennis has been all that great. Uh, you know, a lot of times when he lost, like when he lost to Karatsev in that first Belgrade tournament, he said he played pretty awful. And pretty awful was still, what, 7-5 in the third or tiebreak in the third or something. And, you know, we'd all love to have those problems. But, but a lot of times what a player is feeling about their tennis is probably more important than the way it actually looks to other people because they, they know best and what they think matters most. But again, as I said, looking, you know, I don't think he's going to, if Roger Federer or Matteo Berrettini, let's say, get to the fourth round, fourth round in the quarterfinals, 
I don't think there's. I, I think he's he would be feeling pretty good about that, and and he's got too much experience to be looking ahead to what might lie ahead in the semifinals because he knows he knows some personal experience that anything can happen. You might not necessarily get to the semifinals. Things occur. Life you know happens. So we're talking about so our contenders are Nadal, Djokovic, whichever way you want to flip them. Dominic team, despite the fact he is struggling a little bit. We talked about Sitsipas. Who else would you put in as genuine contenders? I, mean, I could I could throw names at you. I could throw Zverev, Rublev, Sinner, Rude, Berrettini. I don't know. So who else would you put in maybe that bracket below the the top three who would be most people's favourites? Well, at this point, <clears throat> I would put Zverev ahead of team. Okay. And they are in the same quarter. Yeah. Uh, you know, Zverev, Zverev is playing better. When when it when it's on and it comes together, it's frightening. Yeah. But but do you think do you think that it's, a, it's the word consistency, isn't it, with, with Zverev? He can, he can be, would you put your house on him winning a tournament? I'm still not sure because of the level of consistency. Well, I wouldn't put my house on team either right now. No, that's true. Right? So there's that. So, so I put him in there. Other than that, it, look, it's, you know, there's, a reason, there's, one, one, there's a reason why Nadal has won this 13 times, not just because he's the greatest clay court player you know, in the history of the universe of tennis, but also because it's a really, really hard tournament to win. And um, and so I don't think, you know, he's he's very good at doing it. I don't think Yannick Sinner is anywhere close to, to doing that. I mean, he he would have Lorenzo Sonigo potentially uh, in the third round. Sonigo had a terrific week at home in 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 Rome. He did a yeah. great job, and then he pulled out the next week, and then the week after that, there was really not much going on. I mean, as with most young players who have a big breakthrough, usually they're 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 absolute trash for a month after as they try to just recover from this amazing thing they just did and um you know never mind winning a slammer so let me give you Casper Ruud winning Geneva semi-final Madrid semi-final Munich semi-final Monte Carlo absolutely adores playing on the clay could he do some damage and how much you know he he's a tricky one because he's not flashy He's not a guy, he's not a guy that everybody's like, oh, gee, I wonder how that Casper Rude, you know, is doing. Like, I really think he has a shot here because I don't think he's at that level yet, but he does love the clay. And uh, he's also had some wrist issues and this and that, and, and he's had some trouble putting back-to-back weeks together as well. Like, he pulled, he pulled out of Australia, and then um, after he had the great one, and say Madrid, he pulled out of Barcelona, I think. So he's he's had some trouble with that. Now where where is he? He's in teams section. So team rude could be a fourth round match. That would be great. That would be, I think, long. I think there could be some rallies. If that's the night match, bring your sleeping bag, anything you need, because because <laughs> you're not getting out of here. None of us are getting out of here early. Yeah, probably. But again, you know, Rude is playing much better than Team is. And and so yeah. he could come out there. Like we like Team, I find, is a, is a total wild card. He could yes. become Dominic Team again in the next fortnight, or he could be the Dominic Team that we've seen over the last few months. No way to know. I mean, he's got Andujar first round. And Andujar, you know, beyond beating Federer last week. To tell his grandchildren That's that. right. <laughs> Can you imagine being 35 years old and being a contemporary of Federer's and never having played him until, you know, now? <laughs> and then playing and beating him. <laughs> That's right. And sheepishly, you know, apologizing to the crowd. But he's a very, very capable, experienced clay court player. So that is interesting. And then Del Bonis, possibly in the second round, who's having a very, very good clay court season. These are good. And then Fabio 
Fabio Fonini, Fuchovic. I mean, these are these are quality players. Now, I don't think over best three of five, they are they're better than team. But again, we don't know what team's going to bring. And having just touched on on Kasparu, the 22 year old Norwegian comes into Roland Garros really high in confidence. We talked about the runs he's been making, especially on the clay. And ahead of the tournament, Chris Bowers has been speaking to his father and coach Christian. One good thing about being coached by the parent, because uh, the parents, there's no one that cares more about their son or daughter than the parents. So in, in that sense, the the parents will, will basically almost always do anything for their, their, their kids. So I think... Uh, a father-son or father-daughter or, or mother-daughter or son relationship is is a very good thing really because they they really want to to achieve something and they're there for their uh, kid 24/7 uh, compared to maybe a coach that is hired and you know has other <laughs> Uh, things on his mind so in a, in a sense I think being a, a coach and a, and a parent is, is a good thing and of course sometimes it doesn't work out and I think the parents have to be patient that uh, all the, the players or their, their children can go through difficult periods and you need to kind of uh, believe in the plan you made and, and try to to be patient and, and reach the goal in the end it's very easy to be impatient I think from parents if they don't do good results, but uh, luckily Casper has basically done good results most of his career, so it's very easy for me to say that they just have to be patient, but I think uh, I think that's the plan, and if the parents don't have too much competence about tennis and training, I think of course they need to, to try and uh, listen to advice from, from other people uh, inside the business. Do you feel that you are a different coach to Kaspar because you're his dad than you would have been if an up-and-coming Norwegian player had just said, Christian, please, can you coach me? Well, I think it all depends because every player is different. And uh, and Casper uh, uh, is quite uh, easy to coach, I would say. I think that uh, he, he inside he has a big drive and, and that uh, he shows that every day when he goes to practice. And he does uh, many things right and he... He's very easy. He's very coachable and very easy to coach because he has a, a he has a plan and he kind of follows that plan. And uh, and if I would coach someone else, it's not easy to say what kind of uh, path they have made up for themselves. So some people are more difficult to coach than others. But I think I would probably be. Uh, this is my coaching style to be quite calm. But I I, I also demand. Uh, that they work hard and then that they train enough and, and that they take every match and every practice serious. That is what I think is important uh, for the players to do. So I would, of course, tell uh, a player I coach that I'm not happy with the, with the way they're doing if they didn't do that. So it's, it's hard to say, but I, I'm more of the calm uh, type, uh, but uh, I still have a... Um, code that I think that is important for the, the, the players to, to follow if they uh, want to become really, really good players. Now, your best years were when you were about 23, 24, 25. Casper's 22 now. What were you like at 22 and how, how do you compare to what he is now? Well, when I was 22, I kind of uh, just made it to the top 100, I think, at the end of that year. And uh, I was very competitive. I had many coaches and they were all uh, doing a good job uh, in a sense, but I never had that uh, top junior results that Casper had. So I kind of uh, had to go a little bit on my own. Uh, the, the teams now are bigger and it's more difficult. And, and I think that 
this Casper did well in a young age. He has always had a good coaching team and a fitness coach with him from a young age, which I wish I also had. Even though it was not that normal uh, back in the day when I played, the, the teams were a little bit smaller. So he has been doing better than me from the day he was like 13, 14. So he has, um, his path has been maybe also easier, but he has had a better support team behind him since a young age. So, well, uh, anyway, I was uh, 21, 22. I was not giving up, but I was disappointed that I didn't reach the top 100. And, and suddenly I made it. And then I had a good career, I, I believe, for five, six years. I was in the top 100 and I was kind of happy with that. But I think that uh, my mistake or what I should have kind of aimed for is to, to believe in being maybe a top 10 or a top 20 player. I kind of was from a small country. No one ahead of me have had uh, done a big, uh, big success in tennis. So maybe I felt like I didn't believe I was uh, going to be a top 20 or top 10 player when I was when I was playing. That was maybe one thing I regret a little bit, that um, I was maybe a little bit too happy in becoming a top 50 player. So the implication of that is that Kaspar does believe he can become a top 10 player. I think he believes that he can become a top 10 player and I think he dreams about uh, being number one and, and uh, winning a Grand Slam. Uh, and I think it's important to, to dream and, and believe. And uh, There's a difference though, isn't there? I mean, a lot of people dream about it, but actually believing is a, is a different matter. Yeah, it is a different matter. So I don't know. I think Kasper is... Uh, Certainly believing to, that he can become top 10 because he's not that far away and, and uh, he's playing well at the moment and, and feel like he kind of belongs, especially maybe among the clay quarters in that uh, in that ranking. But uh, we are improving the hardcore game and uh, we have many things to improve. So it's not easy. It's, it's a lot of good players there in the top 10. So uh, we had a good start of the year and we're really happy with the, the position he's in. So I think he's... Uh, optimistic about the rest of the year and the future. Yeah, you mentioned Clay there. I mean, are you surprised at just how well he's done on Clay, given that his Clay court results have been so much better than his hard court results? Maybe a little surprised how well it has uh, been this year, because um, I think he had a good start of the year, fourth round of Australian Open, and, and was playing well in, in Acapulco before he got a little bit injured in his wrist. So he kind of had to pull out from the quarterfinals against Zverev before the match even started. And then he was struggling for like 10, 14 days with the wrist. And we, this was the time when we were supposed to, to train on clay to get like 10 four, to 15 good days with clay practice. And it, instead of that, we had like three, four days. <laughs> and then, uh, so we really, really didn't have like too many days to train on the clay before this season. And we kind of jumped to the first tournament in Marbella because he wanted to to feel some matches and, and after that it has been going really well. So I'm a little bit surprised uh, since we didn't have that, you know, good training block that we were planning and, and he was struggling with some some injuries and making semis into Master South and winning a title is, uh, is a very good result that uh, I, if you asked me like two months ago, I would say that this will be difficult. <laughs> so do you see him as a potential Roland Garros champion of the future? Yes, I do. I think that uh, he has the game for it. He has uh, he has the weapons and he has a good clay court game. And uh, you know, Rafa and Novak and those guys they cannot play forever. So I think there's a lot of good players coming behind them. And and I think also Casper is one of them, uh, especially on the clay that uh, has proven that he he 
can play good clay court tennis and, and uh, hopefully in the future he can win Roland Garros and, and still develop his game and, and uh, yeah, be one of the guys that are fighting for the for the trophy here at Roland Garros. And is he ready to do it this year? Of course. I mean, he he's in good shape and we, we're hoping, but you know also that there's a ton of good players there, so we have to... You have to kind of play well every match, and maybe for Casper to win, he has to play his absolute best also in, in uh, against the, the, the top players to have a chance. So I think that uh, bigger surprises have happened before, but uh, we have to respect the, the, the guys that have won many times here before, like Rafa and, and Djokovic and, and the top players. But I think uh, certainly Casper is, is in the mix of uh, contenders a little bit this year. And given that he spent some time at the Rafael Nadal Academy, has Rafa himself ever given Casper any advice? Yes, uh, he has. You know, they, they trained together sometimes. And, and uh, I actually remember one time when Rafa was just coming home from uh, Australian Open in 2019, I guess. He lost, uh, unfortunately, in the final. But he, the next day he came back to Mallorca and he came to the court when Casper was training with Munar. And he... You know, he was probably tired. He didn't need to be there, but he was there for quite a while, and he was kind of uh, helping the coaches and trying to explain how Casper and, of course, James uh, Menard also uh, should play. You know, trying to come with some uh, good tips. So, and I think that was uh, very interesting uh, or kind gesture of him to do. And of course, that Casper, you know, get that kind of advice from from. Uh, a person like Rafa that has won so much is, uh, of course, helping his confidence and, and uh, yeah, believe, believe in his own game. And in terms of the advice that you give him, Christian, how much of it is based on your own career and how much is it just you as a thinking tennis player and tennis watcher? A little bit from my own career, uh, you know, I'm trying to do things as simple as possible, but I also try to learn from from all the other persons in our team, like Eivind that, that is really, really good with the technique and things like this. And uh, I'm also trying to learn from Tony Nadal, which is on the court with us sometimes, and, and all the other coaches that are at the Nadal Academy. So I'm very eager to see what other people are doing, because in Norway we, you know, we didn't produce too many players, so it's very interesting to see what they do in other countries. and. Especially all the coaches that had, uh, like Tony, that had uh, great uh, success with, with Rafa, and and also the other people in our team that are very competent and, uh, and knows a lot about uh, this sport. So trying to mix it up a little bit, you know. I have my own opinions, but I'm I'm really trying to get some good advice from from the people around us. So, what's the best piece of advice you've given him? Uh, I don't know for sure if there's one specific thing, but. Uh, I think that uh, forget the losses and, and move on. I think, like you said before, like parents can go bananas if their daughter or son lose like uh, one bad match or something. But you know, when you have been there before, you know that it's some some days you don't play well. Some days maybe your mind was not on it. But trying to work through those tough periods and 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 try to be. Uh, serious and do good trainings every day because I think that's. Um, I've seen many really good coaches and some not so good coaches. And I think that if you do uh, good training every day, I think you have an advantage over people that, you know, do training, but not train that well every day. I think that maybe that is my strength that we try to every day we're, when we're on the court, we're, we're doing effective and good training. So we get like a, hopefully a good result every day we, we step on the court. And I think that 
that's one advice that I think that he he also uh, believes in and that he's doing well and uh, yeah. Can you actually say what you mean by a good training or is that just totally dependent on the situation? You know, like effective trainings, I don't know, it depends on the situation, but trying to to have good intensity, trying to not talk too much, you know, in the changeover and trying to do effective drills. You know, there's many things you can train on in tennis, but I'm trying to train on the, uh, the training on the most important things that you don't waste too much time on maybe things that are not necessary to train too much on. So... And learning to be competitive, and and you know when you go off the training that you when you're finished with your day of training that you feel like you worked hard and done done a good session. Uh, I think maybe that's my strength as a coach that I'm trying to do, yeah, good tra- good sessions that are related to his game. And is there one little moment that you can think back on in your time coaching Casper when you think I'll be looking back on that in thirty or forty years' time as a a little golden moment in my time coaching my son? Well, not maybe like one specific match, but I think that maybe one thing I, I think I did I, I did quite well is that when, when I was playing, you could reach quite uh, far with just being solid. And, and I saw the game develop and I saw that uh, more and more players had a big weapon, either it was the serve or the forehand. And when Casper was 13, 14 years old, I, I saw that he had a big potential in, in his forehand. So we did a lot of training, trying to to get like a, the forehand to become a good uh, weapon in his in his uh, in his game. And uh, I, I mean, the results show that, of course, that he, he, we have succeeded because I think he has one of the better forehands out there on the tour, especially on the on the clay court. And uh, I think you need that in today's game to 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 reach quite far. You need to have something special, and I think Casper's forehand is uh, is up there uh, with the with the other guys with with like a really good weapon uh, on the tour. On iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, and ATPTour.com. This is the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. Now we can't wrap up this preview pod without talking about the French players. Are you expecting anything? from the French players, Gaston, Gasquet, Monfils, Humbert, Pair, the, the list of Gilles Simon is, is back in action. Are you expecting anything from the French players? And if so, who? You know, they, the French are in an interesting kind of epoch in their, in their tennis life because they were so spoiled, and, and as was tennis, with having four players who at various times made the top 10 in the same generation, which is a mind-blowing thing to do and is really just the luck of DNA and the luck of timing. So you have Gasquet, Simon, Monfils, and Tsonga, and all of them are 34 35, uh, dealing with various injuries, and in Malfis's case, some ennui, and, uh, and Simo as well. And so these guys, maybe this, this could be, I don't think it's going to be the last Roland Garros for all of them, but I think it will be for some of them. Uh, and so there might be some interesting, dramatic moments where they go out in grand French style, having fought valiantly in their final Roland, only to lose you know, a heartbreaker in the fifth set. So those guys know. Benoit Paire, <laughs> No. Hugo Humbert, quality player. Jérémy Chardy, quality player. These are all darn good. Luca Puy, who was the only guy who was going to follow that, that, the four yeah. Mousquetaires, and he's been injured, and he's, you know, perhaps not that good. And, and behind that, there's, you know, the Italians are the ones who are taking over the young gun department. So there I do not see anybody on the French side 
they, they might create some drama. Monfils will have some drama. Tsonga, you know, will, there'll Benoit be an emotional Pat. return. He'll be giving it an effort, but but none of these, none of them, uh, in my opinion, are going to be contenders. Steph, it's been a pleasure. So please join Steph and myself along with the rest of the Radio Roland Garros radio team for live ball-by-ball commentary throughout the tournament. You simply visit the tournament website or the app and you click to listen or you can listen through the 24-7 ATP Tennis Radio channel that's available on the ATP website and on TuneIn. But from Steph and myself, all there's left to say is enjoy the tennis. 